alcoholism, three marriages, and diabetes. Our guest, Tony Miller, says that these are his three greatest gifts. Tony is the founder and president of Jancoa Janitorial Services, and there's an outtake at the end that you don't want to miss. Let's dive in. Failing. 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 I know. When we talk about failure. Some battles you feel like you lost. And survival. Some battles you feel like you win. It's tough. I had to make some tough decisions. We've all faced failure, but what steps do we take to launch ourselves into success? I'm Sarah Brown. There is life. A blessing. Achieve your dream. And then what we do with it. And this is Failing Forward. Welcome, Tony. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm so excited that you're here today and for us to learn. Um, I know you've got three important lessons or gifts, challenges that you're going to share with us. But before we get into that, tell us a little bit about where did you grow up? What was your family like? A little bit of background. Well, I had a great normal life. A father who um, was awesome. I loved him. I spent a lot of time with him. He was my hero. Um, we we bonded together, and uh, he was an important part of my life. When I was 12 years old, uh, I had a secret. I didn't want anybody to know it. My parents didn't know it. My friends didn't know it. No one knew it. I couldn't read. And if you're a 12-year-old and you have this big secret yeah, and you've moved from school to school, it's a hard thing to keep quiet. And I had this teacher named Mrs. Robinson, and she'd walk up and down the hallway and the aisleway, and one, one afternoon she stopped me. It was the fifth school I'd been in. I'm seventh grade, 12 years old. She comes all the way around, standing behind me, and says, Oh, my God, you can't read. Every head turns. Every eye is looking right at me. I want to escape. I want to go out the window. But Mrs. Robinson didn't do it to be mean. Right. She did it because not on her watch. She wasn't going to just pass me along. She wasn't going to let me be that guy that every other teacher had done who didn't want me back in her classroom. She just wanted to be done with me. Not Mrs. Robinson. How did that happen, 12 years old? Was it that you were moving a lot? We were moving. My family was busy. They were just unaware. How many, children, how many siblings in your family? Uh, I have an older brother and a younger brother and, and a younger sister. And any, like, learning disabilities, like dyslexia that prevented you from reading? No, I just couldn't read. Wow. So Mrs. Robinson, she calls Mrs. Lumley. And Mrs. Lumley was gifted in working with kids who were 12 years old. She was gifted at working with kids who could not read. And when I drove up to her, I rode my bicycle up to her house, and I looked down the driveway, and it looked like the longest driveway I'd ever seen in my entire life. And I'm thinking, do I turn around? Do I run away, or do I ride down the driveway? I ride down the driveway, and there's Mrs. Lumley with a plate full of Oreo cookies. <laughs> and I'm thinking, this reading thing's not going to be that bad. And I go inside with Mrs. Lumley, and she says, you're going to learn how to read. And I said, well, Mrs. Lumley, how do you know I'm going to learn how to read? She looks out the window and sees my bike, looks back at me, looks back at my bike, and she says, I've never known anybody who could ride a bike who couldn't learn how to read. Well, <laughs> I was sold on it. I mean, right away, I'm going to learn how to read. I got back on my bike. I rode home. 
I go and I talk to my parents. I went and I told my father, I'm going to learn how to read. And I told my mom, I'm really going to learn. This guy is going to learn how to read. Well, my parents are thrilled. My dad says, well, how do you know you're going to learn how to read? I said, Mrs. Lumley said, if I can ride a bike, I can learn how to read. Now, I don't think Mrs. Lumley meant ride up and down the street no-handed every day. Ride <laughs> over the railroad tracks. Of course, I did. Right. She said, you know, the more you ride that bike, the faster you're going to learn how to read. Wow. She had me right then and there. I never looked back. I always loved going to her because she made me feel appreciated. Yeah. And she respected me, and she was an encourager. She never said, you're too dumb, you're too, too, you're too stupid, and you're too lazy to do this. She was only an encourager. Huh. So that was a great start for me yes. in my life. And then God gave me three incredible gifts. And at the time, and I think people sometimes are jealous or they're envious of me for these great gifts. Okay. And those three gifts are alcoholism, three marriages, and diabetes. Three great gifts. Three incredibly awesome gifts. You're going to tell me why. Absolutely. And I believe that the more pain you go through, the greater the gift. And when I was 28 years old, I was the last to know that I'm an alcoholic. I thought I was just a really, really bad driver who shouldn't drink. It turns out I am a really, really bad driver who should not drink. It's a true statement. And I, I think what happened to me that was really great was I ended up at AA out of desperation. Okay. It wasn't where I said, hey, this is going to be the great organization that I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. I'd had an accident, and I almost killed somebody. And the policeman came back to my car and said, I think he's dead. You're kidding. No. The guy lived, but not because I hit the brakes or not because I was a good driver or that I cared. That's the way I think that God got my attention. And I was so despondent after being sober for six months, I really believed the only way out for me. And yet, I, don't, I still do not believe I'm an alcoholic. I just believe that I'm a terrible driver who shouldn't drink. Mm -hmm. I really believe for me the only way out was to shoot myself. That was it. The was only that, possible way out. Was that before you hit the guy? Like, were you... No, I had hit the guy and, six, and I was sober for six months. Okay. And at the end of six months, I couldn't imagine life without a drink. And if life was about not drinking, what kind of life was that? There couldn't be any life. If you couldn't drink, what could you do? Mm -hmm. So I, I end up in AA. One. And I'm thinking, this is really great for these people, but I don't think it's a great thing for me. And I really love it for them. <laughs> and if I was really... Just an alcoholic, it'd be great for me, but I'm not. It's just a driving problem. And finally, one day, I realized that I was a terrible person who didn't know how to be a good person. I did terrible things, and I was ashamed of all of them. And here was Mrs. Lumley, who had helped me so much early on in my life, and here I am 
drinking a fifth and a half a day, and thinking that there's no life after this. And I got no idea how to do it. But I end up every morning at 4 o'clock in the morning, I make this commitment with God. And when I got to AA, I did not believe in God. In fact, I thought there is no God, and if there is a God, I don't even want any part of God. So I'm in this group of people, and men are there, and they're trying to help me learn how to be a good person. You know, send your child support, man. Go see your kids. Tell the truth. I mean, all these unbelievably harsh rules that they were putting on me. Show up. Stop lying. And today I have a great relationship with my kids and my wife. And because I got to go every morning, I got this disease that's incurable. And every morning at 4 a.m., I got to get up, I get with God, and I say, okay, God, I'm willing to do your will. Please give me the willingness to do your will rather than my will. Because every time I do what I want, my life tanks. And so having a disease, a mental illness that there's no cure, no way to do it, other than show up and work on it. But 4 a.m., God and I have this conversation. Every, every single, every day. Every day I get with God. And I, I got to tell you that sometimes it takes to 4, 7, 4, 10 before I say, okay, God, I'm willing to turn my life. <laughs> right. I'm willing to do what you want me to do in my life rather than what I want to do. Now, I'm not saying that by 427 that I'm not trying to take it back. Sure. That I'm not trying to do my will. But I can only get a 24-hour period of reprieve. There's no cure. There's no magic. I can only do it one day at a time. And so from 4 a.m. to 4 a.m., I'm going to do, I, have, I ask for the willingness from God to do whatever he wants me to do. And sometimes he takes me down roads that I just look up and I go, God, please do not make me do that. I do not want to do that at all. And I've been sober 37 years and go to 7 to 10 meetings a week because I want to have a great life. And I had a terrible life when I was doing my will. But when I'm doing God's will, then I'm a much better person. And the other catch in this goofy AA stuff is <laughs> you have to serve other people or you can't keep it. Right. It's a spiritual program, and when I went into the program, I didn't believe in God. There's no way you could make me. And then here I am in this AA program where I got to get with God every morning at 4 o'clock. I got to serve other people, and it's not about me. And when I make it about me, I'm miserable. You can't make that stuff up. I don't know how I got there, but I know that today my life's a thousand times better than it was when I was drinking a fifth and a half every day and being a big liar and being a terrible person. So what did get you there? Was it the car accident? Yes. Was it a wife leaving? I, I, what was Car it? accident where I almost killed a man. It was my eighth car. Did you go to... It was your eighth car. Did you yeah. have to go to jail for that? Well, they didn't give DUIs back then. And so when I got, pulled, when I got arrested there, the other guy was, did an improper lane change, and so he was part at fault. But when I watched them trying to get him out of that car for two hours, and I didn't know who I was or where I was, and I had a blackout and recognized 
I could have just as well killed him as not. Right. It wasn't because anything I did. It was just through the grace of God that I was able to walk away from that. Nothing was wrong with me. They take him to the hospital to save his life, and I have nothing wrong. Like every other accident that I had, I never had a scratch as people were towed away, sent to the hospital. That's crazy. It is crazy. So was it literally like the next day that you said, I'm getting sober? I mean, when was it? Well, I did get sober. I said, I'm not going to drink again. And then that led for six months where I was completely sober. But you weren't going to AMA, AA no. meetings or working the program? No, I had it handled. I didn't need that AA stuff. I didn't even know I was an alcoholic. Right. So then what took you, got you to the AA meeting? Well, let me tell you about that. I got there because I was concerned about my own sanity. And I'd been in a room and I'd made this list. And the list was three options. One was get drunk, one was shoot myself, and the very bottom of the page was in the smallest of small letters was AA. Now, I had both hands over that. I didn't want anybody to see that on that table because I was afraid they would find out how sick I was. I was okay with getting drunk. I was okay with shooting myself. The last thing in the world that I wanted was anybody to think I was sick enough to have to go to AA. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up in AA, and I think the great part about AA is I got to go on with my life. And I think the second gift that God gave me through this was three marriages. And the first marriage is three or four years and wonderful woman and she came one day and she said, I just can't imagine spending the rest of my life with you. I can't do it. And she divorced me and I was drunk most of the time with her and I, I understood it completely. Right. My second marriage, I'd been sober a couple years and my second wife, after two weeks, came and said, you know what? I can't imagine spending the rest of my life with you. Now, here I am, sober, a couple years, working what I think is a good program, and this woman says, I'm done with you. We go to counseling, and they ask her, they said, so if he could change everything that you're unhappy about, how would you feel about him? She says, I still can't imagine spending the rest of my life with him. No. Yeah. So Mary and I, we've been married 26 years, my third wife. Mm -hmm. And we've been married, she, we've both been married three times. She did too? Yeah. Oh. And I recognized that every marriage that I went into, I was the common denominator. I had to change. And just being sober wasn't enough. I had to, I had to really get better. And Mary and I, we go to a relationship coach, I go to a psychiatrist, uh, I go to the program, and I'm really working on, I got to be my best. Yes. In fact, I'm auditioning every single day to be the guy that Mary wants to be. Mm-hmm. She, ha- she can choose anybody. She doesn't, what I learned after three marriages is there's no guarantee, and if I want to be in this game, I better stay pitching. I better be my best. And I'm auditioning every day. My wife loves to go to the opera. 
I love to go to the opera. Why? Because my, my wife loves to go to the opera. Will you share what your mantra is every day that you share in AA meetings? I sure will. Because I love it. I sure will. It's just a really, really, really good thing. I choose to be in a great mood today, thanks to gratitude, a really big God, and an extremely hot wife, and a privilege to be in the program. And I believe that 100% because it's given me my life back. And the Mary and I have an opportunity to have a great life because I know I got to work on me and I have a mental illness and I know it's daily. And so if I'm willing to do the work, then I get to have a great relationship with Mary. We have five kids and 10 grandchildren. And we'd never have that if I wasn't in the program, and if I wasn't auditioning with Mary every day to have a great life. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny, I've been married 26 years, and the woman I fantasize is about my wife. <laughs> Seriously? It's crazy. Yeah, stop. Seriously? No, it's true. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. All you husbands out there and wives, you better be listening to that. Yeah. My wife comes to me and says, why don't we do a program called the Hot Spouse Program? Now, in the program, there's lots of hugging and there's lots of kissing. There's lots of intimacy about how do you make sure you have a great life with that person? You know, this relationship coach that we go to, we, Mary and I sit on this couch and we talk to each other. And, and I think I've said, hey, you are the greatest person in the world. And my wife might think that I said, hey, how about cleaning? <laughs> or she'll yeah. say to me, hey, you're a really wonderful man. And I might say, I might think she's saying, I'm not good enough. Yeah. I don't pack the gear. Right. And so we have to, we, we learn how to talk to each other and how does that feel and have tough conversations. And I think the hardest thing for me with her was really to be open and honest because I didn't want to hurt her feelings. So I had to, I had to learn how to have tough conversations. Because if you're going to be involved in a relationship with somebody, I believe you got to have tough conversations. And I think two of the most sexy traits a person can have is gratitude and the ability to have a tough conversation. And when I get home at night, I find Mary, I hug her, I kiss her. I don't go to the TV in a different room and she's watching another. Mary's my best friend, my lover. And I'd rather spend more time with Mary than anybody on the planet. And I think that leads me to the third thing that, that Mary and I are really passionate about is health. Yes. And I see this doctor, and his name is Dr. Magenheim, and he's a great guy. And he came to me one day and he said, uh, Tony, man, you're, you're obese. I mean, I don't know about you, but that's not exactly what I want my doctor to say. No. To you are very skinny. So you were heavier? I was 50 pounds overweight. And he told me, you know, if you don't do this, I'm going to end up cutting your feet off. What? Yeah. Are you kidding? Yeah. He, he didn't tell me that the first time, but when I... So I lost 10 pounds okay. the first year, and then I get diabetes. So then he says, man, I'm going to tell you, and he tells me a bunch of things, but I only hear one thing he says. And that one thing I hear him say is, I'm going to cut your, your feet, feet off. Yeah. If you don't lose 40 more pounds. No, wait. Are you exaggerating this, or did he really say that? He said that, but he said other things with it. Okay. He says, okay. and this is what I love about him. Okay. He says he, there were lots of other things he said. <laughs> right. It wasn't just that. The only thing I heard was, I'm going to cut, cut your, your feet, feet off. off. 
I love your laser focus on that. I would have focused on that too. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. So every morning at four o'clock after I get with God, yes, you know, and make this agreement with Him, He'll do the impossible. I got to go do the impo- or the possible. I go down to the treadmill. Can I interrupt really sure. quickly? So in the morning when you to have that time you get with God, what are you doing? Like, are you praying on your knees? Are you laying in your bed? Are you saying a certain prayer? Like, what are you meditating? What do you do? I'm up. And I'm talking to God while I'm walking around. And I talk to God. I talk to God all day long. There's not a moment that goes by that I don't feel that I can reach out and do it. It's not a one time and done. I talk to God all the time. I love that. And so it's 4 o'clock in the morning and it starts and it goes all the way till I go to bed. Okay, okay. And I can reach out for God all the time. And we talk on the treadmill. He tells me things. I'm not sure I like them. And then during the day and he'll shove me in a certain way. Yeah. Go be encouraging that person. I'm like, just roll my head. No, please don't make me. Yeah. So we we have a conversation all day long. Okay. All right. Thank you. Okay. So then back to that you work out. Yeah. All right. And and I think the thing is, had I not heard that from Dr. Megenheim every morning when I get up, I don't want to go to the treadmill. It's the very last thing I want to do. But I get my shoes on and I head down and I get on the treadmill because I want to keep my feet. And every 120 days, they do a blood test on me to make sure that I'm eating properly. So I don't have sugar and I don't have bread. And I would have never made that change had I not gotten diabetes. So let me recap this for you. And that is that the greatest three gifts, and people are jealous out there thinking, wow, this guy's got it. Alcoholism. (laughs) This guy's got it. Yes. Three marriages. Three marriages. And diabetes. And diabetes. And I believe that the pain, the greatest pain that you go through or the greatest challenges that you go through end up being your greatest gifts. These are gifts. When I went into AA, I thought it was a curse. And later on, I realized, man, I was lost in life without God, without spirituality. There's no possible way that I would have been able to be open and honest with Mary, have spirited conversations, separate for a while, get back together, and then really want to work on that relationship even harder. I wouldn't ever do that, except that God's there and he's always pushing me and he wants me to do things that I that are good for me. And here's a woman that is on her third marriage that's my best friend and that I fantasize about. That is crazy land. You know when we talked about believing uh, nothing is impossible and the word impossible is simply an invitation? Yes. Um, Many people would say those three things would be impossible to overcome. I think that's what makes them such powerful gifts. You know, when I have a great life, that I have a great wife, and that I'm in great physical shape, and that uh, I feel the best I've ever felt since Dr. Magenheim said, man, you are obese, and I'm gonna cut your feet off. And Doc, I'm sorry, I had to tell on you. I know you told me other things, (laughs) but hey man, that's all I heard. You're cutting my feet off. And every morning after I'm getting with God, I'm right down there on the treadmill, man, because you said that. When you took the softer, easier way with me, I didn't even care, man. I lost a whole 
10 pounds. Right. Well, we're going to get a picture of you and I that we'll have on all of our social media because listeners, Tony has the most dry sense of humor and I can never contain my giggles at you sometimes. And the cutting your feet off is pretty, yeah. pretty harsh. Right. Yeah. But. I th- and I, th- I tell you, I think that the, the key to, to what I'm really trying to say to people yeah. is yeah. this. I'm trying to say that take a pa- take a piece of paper out and just list your greatest challenges or, or what's been great pain for you. Yeah. And just make a list of those things and look down them and say, what caused me the greatest pain? Because I believe that the things that cre- created the greatest pain for us is where the greatest gifts are. It took me a long time to realize that alcoholism was a gift rather than a curse. Mm-hmm. And I was angry and I was resentful and mm-hmm. all those things. And when it turned around to where I thought, man, that's a gift, my life changed. And then three marriages, well, I better do something. And then now I have a great relationship with my wife because three marriages said, how many, Tony, how many marriages do you think it takes? Does it take five? Does it take seven? Does it take 12? What, what are the number of marriages that you need to be happy? Yeah. And I just know that, hey, I, I want to be with this woman. I want this to be great, and I want to be a great spouse. And the more that I want to be healthy, the more that Mary wants to be healthy. And so I have an opportunity to be healthy, and she has an opportunity, and she's supportive, and we're on the same page. I think um, that tip for people around list what your greatest challenges or pains are, and then what were those gifts is so important. And I think um, there's a professor at Stanford, I think, who has her students write a failure resume. I think it's very similar to that. Sure. But then it's, okay, what did I get from that? Right. Because there is a learning, there is a lesson in it. Right. And I think it gives us energy. And that's why I say make the list and circle one and start with one and see how many that that come about. But if you take one, I think you end up being energized by it rather than be held hostage by it. Yeah, because it's freeing at that point, right? Very freeing. And I think that's why I think I feel free to be myself today rather than held hostage to the challenges or failures or mistakes or whatever it is. And some people would call it failures. I choose to call it gifts. Yeah. And I think everyone has that ability to have these gifts that are in their life, whatever it is that's, that they're looking at. Well, you are a gift to us. Thank you for taking the time to meet today. My pleasure. I think you know how I feel about you, but I respect you so much. I appreciate you so much, and I really love all the wisdom that you share. So thanks for being here today. Hey, thank you. Appreciate it. So this is the outtake. Our producer, Anna Bolke, asks, how does someone become alcoholic? And Tony talks about that and how he was suicidal. He also talks about a miracle at Oak Street. And for those of you who don't know what that is, it's an AA meeting place. And he says how that saved his life. Enjoy. So, Tony, for for those who uh, might not understand alcoholism, what do you think gets somebody to become or to be alcoholic? Well, for me, it was I was 17 years old. And the first time I drank, uh, I got drunk, had a blackout and had an accident 
where I almost injured the person that was riding with me. I'd never drank before, but I couldn't get enough of it right from the get-go. It was good for me. Mm -hmm. I'd always not felt comfortable in my own skin, and I felt like I was always out of place, out of sorts. And so I needed a breaker or something special that would make me feel okay with other people around me. And, and what I found was the more I drank, the, the better I felt. So I'd always have a few drinks before I got started and went anywhere. I never could go back to just go there and be myself. And I wanted to. Other people seemed to do it. And so I felt like I had to have this drink. And then I realized that it did not help the situation, but I couldn't stop doing it. I'd say, well, I won't drink this weekend, or I won't drink. And the more I said that, the more that I drank. When I was 19 and I started our business, I was working at, uh, or I was drinking at Crow's and Clifton. Where's that? Okay. It was a bar, and I uh, would pay my bar bill by cleaning. I, I'd be the guy laying at 2.30 in the morning on the floor, and there would be broken glass and puke everywhere, and that smelled like money to me. So oh I said, hey, what about me cleaning? I'll, I'll clean to pay. I had a full-time job, and I was going to, to UC full-time and cleaning these bars. Ended up with cleaning like four or five bars because I'd have four or five bar tabs. No way. Yeah. So for me, that question's easily answered was I never felt good in my own skin. I needed to be able to feel equal. I felt less than. I felt like I didn't pack the gear to be in life with other human beings. So it just really helped me. I found myself gravitate to people that drank. So my friends drank. Anybody yeah. that I hung out with drank. And I was stunned when I went to AA and they said, you only have to do really one thing. And I said, okay, I'm willing. If it's just one, I'm willing to do that. And they said, you have to change everything. Oh, my God. And I thought, wow, oh that's kind of rude. <laughs> you could have just told me that right off the bat. But for me, I still have to work at fitting in and, and feeling good in my own skin. And I think that's why the program being spiritual. Yes. And for me, I wasn't spiritual. And until it became a spiritual thing, I was very uncomfortable and I had to trust other people. And when I got there, it wasn't God. It was a chair in the beginning. It was a table, something bigger than myself to be able to fit in. But when I was 19 and I'm starting this business, um, my father had died um, and he went in for bypass surgery in Michigan. He was in Ann Arbor and I drove up and we had this talk and he said, hey man, if anything happens to me, I want you to be responsible for the family. And I said, well, you know, I got an older brother and he said, man, he's got cancer. I'm going to put it on you and I know this is a terrible thing, but I know there's nothing that's going to go wrong because I'm in God's hands. And uh, he said, but what I'd love you to do is to drive home, go back to UC, and take that test, because it's important to me. And your education's the most important thing I want you to do. So I got in my car and drove back, hugged him, and told him I loved him, and my mom said, don't worry, he's in God's hands. And I get home and I go take that exam, and I go to the phone booth and I call my dad, 
And I said, hey, how did, how did it go for him? He said, he's in the recovery room. We think everything went great. Call back, 3 o'clock. I call back. How's everything going? My uncle's on the phone, and he said, man, I hate to tell you this, but he didn't make it. And I was so mad at God. I thought God killed him. Of mm -hmm. all the people in the world, why would he kill my dad? I mean, he's God. He could have intervened. He could have done something for him. And so the very first thing I did was I went and quit school right then yeah. and there. That was it for me. I'm done. I'm never going to school. Started this business. I'd been cleaning these bars, and then I decided I was going to go into it full time. I was going to show God. If he was going to do that, I'm just going to go clean. I don't need an education. I don't need God. And so from 19 to 28, I drank a lot every day, got married, divorced. All through that was a blur. And I was headed in the wrong direction. And all I wanted to do was feel better. Right. Can you tell um, cleaning at Oak Street? Sure. And how, the irony of that, which I think is interesting. Yeah, when I went into Oak Street, um, the very when I drove over to Oak Street. And maybe we should explain what Oak Street is. Well, I was in a guy's office, and I'd made my list, three things I wanted to do, and uh, I was in the middle of suicide. And... Um, I was sitting there at this desk, and I had my eyes closed, and there was a gun on the desk, and I'd circled, uh, shoot myself. And I had my eyes closed, and there's nobody in the room but me, and I, I feel this hand on my shoulder. And the, the voice says, why don't we go to AA? And I open my eyes, and look around and I'm the only person in the room. There's no one else there. So I'm like, wow, it's just me thinking that. There's no God. And then I'm starting to pick this gun up and I think, um, why don't I just go? I mean, I can drive around the block. There's no rule I gotta go in. I just drive over there and drive around the block. I'll look it up, see where it is. It's like 10 minutes away from where I'm at. And I get in the car and drive over there. I drive around the block a couple times and finally park. I go in the front door. And I'm thinking, the yard needs mowed, the hedges need trimmed, <laughs> the, the porch needs painted. And, I, and then finally I go over and I go, I'll just go in for a minute. I open the door and there they are. They're everywhere. Carpet spots. Spots <laughs> all over the carpet. Oh and I walk in and I think, what can I learn here? This is a waste of time. So I go in and I go over to the bathroom and I go inside and I take my hand across the top of the partitions. It's dirty. Stop. I wash my hands. I check the toilets. I check behind everything. And I'm thinking, this is place is filthy, man. I'm leaving. And there's two guys sitting at a table. And, I, and they're laughing and they're having a great time. And I walk over to them. I said, man, I'm here for serious stuff. What are you having, laughing about? And they go, man, we've been waiting for you. I'm like, sure. You say that to everybody. So I sit down with these two guys. 
And they tell me their names, but I don't care. Because right. I'm not going to be there that long, so I call right. them un, unnamed one and unnamed two. And so they tell me their story, and I go, man, you guys are a thousand times worse than me. Maybe you should shoot yourself because you got no hope. <laughs> but they got joy. They got hope. They got joy. And, I mean, I'm attracted to the hope yeah. that they got. Yeah. And they invite me to go to a meeting, and I'm not really want to. And I'm like, man, I'm on a deadline. I got, I got to have this done by 5 o'clock. And they go, man, you got plenty of time. I mean, you've already gone through the first few seconds, so it won't, it'll be quick. So I go to the meeting and I meet some people and and then I I'm leaving and they go man uh, you can just put that off till tomorrow and I go well we'll see I don't know so I put it off till tomorrow and um, I come back the next day on the way to finish what I started and um, these two guys are not there and I'm kind of ticked I'm like. Where are these guys? Like we're not we don't have an appointment. We don't have a meeting. Right. I'm just assuming these guys are going to be, be there, there for, for me. You. Yes, yes, it's all about me. Right, totally. I need to be there with these guys. Right. And so they've introduced me to all these other people and I get there and I I start wandering around with these other guys and before I know it I'm drinking bad coffee and I'm telling stories <laughs> and I'm there and I'm like what is going on with me I just wanted to drive by the building and check it off the list I didn't want to get all entangled with these people I don't even know their names I never see those two guys again ever I never see them again but I get I get from this place where I'm going to end my life, make the worst decision I've ever made, I'm going to make it while I'm alone. Not when there's other people around. I don't ask anybody. I'm at the worst possible place that I could possibly be, and I'm going to make the biggest decision in my life. And I got to believe that God was in that room when I couldn't be there. When mm -hmm. I was unable to see him, be part of him, I was just angry. And the only thing that was going to make me feel better was a drink. And if I took the drink, I was going to kill somebody this time. Mm -hmm. So there's no way out for me. No options. No way out. The only solution is to shoot myself. I mean, every rational person can see that. That's the only way you could do it. <laughs> right. I mean, it's clear to me. Right. And then so today I'm thinking, you know, where would I be if God didn't intervene in my life? And I know that he's been there all along. I'm the guy who said, I don't want any part of you. And yet kept pushing, kept pushing, kept exactly. pushing. And what I found out was that alcohol and then drugs were what I had to sedate myself with so that I could stomach me. Because I could not stomach the person I looked in the mirror at. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Wow, what an incredible story. Thank you, Tony, so much for showing up and for opening up. I want to thank everyone behind the scenes, Anna Bolke, our producer, and the incredible team at Gwyn Sound. If you liked this episode, please, please go to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and write a review. In the tech startup world, failure, it's a badge of honor, not a dirty word. Listen in our next episode as I interview Natasia Malihalo as she talks about her badges she's collected along the way.